You're in Deuteronomy this evening, Deuteronomy chapter number 28. I want, as I mentioned in the morning hour, to take some time this evening and really address an issue that I think is relevant in our, our news cycles, but ought to be important to us as biblically-minded believers as well. And the theme really deals with why Israel. Um, you know, it comes to a stark contrast of mind, or consideration rather of mind, how often this very small, tiny nation is in the public eye by way of news media. Uh, we're riding over here uh, from home. I got to thinking about uh, this time of year. There's a lot of college football going on, and I have for the majority of my teenage years, uh, especially in my teenage years, I was an avid fan. And November the 4th, 1995, I was watching Alabama University play football on television. Uh, one reason it sticks out in my mind is my parents had a small analog TV. It had like these rabbit ears. How many know what rabbit ears are? I used that phrase the other week and whoever I was talking to was a younger person and they had no clue what I was talking about. But I had rabbit ears and you could get one channel and uh, must have, my sisters were doing something. My mom let me go in there and watch the last half of this football game. Now that doesn't mean anything to you. But in the middle of this game, uh, Alabama's playing, and I really wasn't pulling for either of them. I just liked the football game. They broke a news story and it interrupted the game and I never got to see the conclusion of the game. Um, come to find out the prime minister, his name was Yitzhak Rabin, of Israel had been assassinated. And just the last two years, his name had been in the news. In 93, um, I guess November of 93, he and Yasser Arafat had signed the Oslo Peace Accords in 93, and they did it on the lawn at the White House. It was an epic type thing. And just maybe 18 months before, in fact, September of 95, he and Yasser Arafat and Shimon Peres had signed the Oslo II Agreements. And uh, they had signed those, and that was done down in Egypt. And these were national news, and he was something of uh, at least world over to be seen as an individual that he would bring a level of peace to Israel. And in the Oslo Accord, to break it down in simplicity, it allowed for there to be Palestinian representation of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Does that sound familiar to you? And he was the one, this prime minister. It was somewhat unpopular in his country, but they wanted peace. And Israel on many occasions, even dating back to 1967 and 73, had ceded land that they had gained in one form or another, all for the purpose of having peace. And yet the ceding of the uh, allowance and the recognition of the Palestinian Liberation Authority uh, that was founded by Yasser Arafat and several others, which would be the predecessor of Hamas, uh, the peace there lasted four years, five years, and I'm right back in the news. And you might wonder why that date sticks in my mind. I had just two years before had a, 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 an assignment in school, and um, I had to do my state history book. And I had this whole book, and I had to go get all this clip art. Uh, that was where you could download photos off the Internet or anything. You know, I had to get clip art. The very next year I had to pick a nation, but it could not be your nation. It had to be a different nation. And so at that time, I only knew of a couple other nations. You know, I didn't really pay attention, but I chose Israel. And it was interesting to me from that young age onward how often Israel is always in the news. But yet that wasn't just a historical event for me. It wasn't the first time it was 95 or 93. 
I went back on and I had learned that they made the news in 1948 and they were in the news prior to 1948 and they were in the news in the 1950s. They were in the news in the 1960s when they, uh, 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 by subtlety, had gotten a Iraqi Jew to abscond with his French-made Corsair and fly it from Iraq into Israel and they repainted it. And um, the U.S. wouldn't sell them jets. France wouldn't sell them jets. And so this Iraqi Jew happened to be a pilot and they got him and his family out and he flew this thing over to Israel. They repainted the structure and on worldwide news when they're uh, talking about their new military, here comes this Corsair with the Star of David on it. That's how they got their first jets. Uh, they were in there in the late 67 with the Six Day War and in 73 they were there and in betwixt there and there in the early 80s uh, when they went to war with Lebanon. Uh, they were on the news again in the late 80s. They were on the news when a group of pilots in F- 15s, I believe it was, flew across the Arabian desert and blew up the nuclear reactor that belonged to Iraq on and again and again and again and again. And here we are 30 or 40 years and they're yet in the news. And this news has led up to the fact that there have been a total of over 3,500 casualties, many individuals that have died. I would say that, and I know that you know this, that the overwhelming number of the individuals that have perished and been wounded by the extents of how you and I might consider people have been innocent, meaning they weren't military personnel on either side. And by the way, I think it well worth to note this, uh, that the majority of people that live in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank aren't looking for the total and utter destruction of Israel. No more than every Jew that inhabits the territory of the state of Israel is looking to destroy those in Gaza. Yet there is evil present and there is wars and there will be continuing to be continual wars that exist. And one has to ask, why is it of any value to Israel? I mean, if you do just a cursory study, and I'll present you with stuff in just a moment, you'll find out, and I'm speaking not of the nation of Israel, but I'm talking about its ancestors, you'll find out a host, a number of times, the Jewish people, their descendants, from times of antiquity to now, have been in a constant state of turmoil. In fact, I would venture to say there's been more war than there ever has peace. Why is it that way? Now, some today, and sadly, many of them being Baptist folks, many of them being believers, would deny and say that God is finished with Israel and that Israel is just a contrary group of individuals that are warmongers. That's what they'd talk it up to. But if you were to call them anti-Semitic or if you were to call them haters of Israel, they'd challenge you on how they love all people and want to give the gospel to them. But they do seem to have a particular disdain for those of Jewish descendancy. In fact, some of them would even deny the fact that the Jews of today are even Jews at all. But we'll leave that for another time. Some would blame all of the ill on the Middle East on Theodore Herzl. Theodore Herzl was an Austria-Hungary politician of Jewish descent back in the uh, really the previous century, early 1900s. I think he was born in the late 1800s. But he had rose to fame and due to all that he saw, the pomgroms that were in Poland and, and all of the constant battles that were fought and waged in various forms and the persecution they had endured, uh, Herzl popularized an opinion that I would subject, has been around for many years, of a massive return of Israeli or Jewish descendants back to the land of their antiquities to establish a modern state. 
In fact, in May of 1948, when Benjamin uh, uh, Gurion, Ben-Gurion uh, was to proclaim the nation of Israel on that first day, above him is a picture of a bearded man that is none other than Theodore Herzl. And he is called the father of modern Zionism. Yet, it is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, almost sarcastic, to think that Zionism just started a hundred years ago. For over a thousand years, perhaps any longer, even longer, Jews that were distributed in the diaspora all across the face of the earth, be it in Iraq, as I mentioned, or in India, or in China, or in the U.S., or in all or any of the African nations across Europe and the, uh, the Soviet Union, once a year at Passover, would conclude their Passover with a simple expression, next year in Jerusalem. For more than a millennium, there has been a persistent desire in the hearts of the Jews to return to the land of their antiquity. But it seems today that there's a great struggle to understand whose land it really belongs to. The best I can help you with that is it all starts or could be decided only by how far you want to go back in history. The reality is, if you go back to Abraham, it belonged to somebody else before Abraham got there. It belonged to the Canaanites and the Jebusites. But none of them in this day argue whether or not they should possess the land for the simple fact that you haven't met any Canaanites or Jebusites in the last many years. There'd be other groups that would come and go over the span of, of the annals of history. But one constant that seems to remain is the Jewish people and their heartfelt desire to belong to that land. And that should be the case. For they'll leave for a period of time, some 66 to 70 of them, toward the end of Jacob's life, and they'll descend to Egypt because Egypt had bread. And they'll return some short time later uh, under Moses, if you'll recall. And there God would split the Red Sea and they would go across the Sinai Peninsula and they would roam for 40 years. And in Joshua's ministry, they would at once, that first Aleph, that great leader, would enter through Jordan and there besiege and by God's mighty power, take the area of Jericho and later of Ai. And subsequently, they would spend the bulk of the lifetime of Joshua attempting to settle the land that God had given them by promise as they saw it, as the Bible teaches of the eternal covenant of God. That's what this passage we read here a moment ago in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There's a warning in the last days of the life of Moses, what God is going to do if they refuse to hear him and what God is going to do if they will be obedient to him. And throughout Scripture, one of the major aspects of prophecy is the predicted suffering of Israel. This can seem somewhat to contrast considering their status as the chosen nation, the chosen people. No other nation of the world, past, present, or future, exceeds the suffering to which Israel has and will endure. As I said a moment ago, they remain. If I doubted that they were ever the chosen people of God, I'd really have to come to consideration how is it possible that they remain? And they remain successfully all across the four corners of the world. Uh, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Isaac and Abraham have been prime ministers of places like 
England. You'll remember Benjamin Disraeli. In fact, and you can Google this later if you want to check up, but the, uh, there's a currently a race in Mexico City, a political race, not a foot race, but a political race to see who's going to be the next mayor. The former incumbent has retired and it's open up now and a general campaign and the leading candidate, her name is Shinbaum. Doesn't sound Mexican, does it? She's raised there all her life. Her grandparents or parents left Bulgaria and Eastern Europe and immigrated to Mexico to escape the pogroms and the Holocaust. She's lived there all her life. She's an influent mayor, or I should say an influent lawyer running for mayor, and likely as things might would have it, may ascend to higher levels of government in the country of Mexico as well. You look at our country, you could look at our Supreme Court. For years we've had Supreme Court justices that were descendants of the Jew. In fact, we really need to look no further than Harrisburg for our current governor, in fact, is a Jew. It seems that wherever they go, they thrive. They thrive. And yet you'll never find a group of people that has been more marginalized in one sense, one upon which more suffering has been fallen upon than these people. So the question would remain is, why do they continue to have these problems? Why is it that Israel is often under the place of suffering? Well, if we want to cut the message short tonight, you could say it this, that the root cause of Israel's trials is steeped in the eternal conflict between divine purpose and satanic oppression. They were divinely selected of God, and because of such, they are a special object of satanic attack. God, really for the Jewish people, had a succinct number of things that he wanted to accomplish through them. Let me give you just a couple of them. For instance, one of them, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, a primary responsibility that God had for the Jewish people is that they would bring through their lines the promised Redeemer. That seed of a woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That Redeemer. That king that would come and would establish ultimately a heavenly kingdom here upon earth. That was to come through Abraham's line. Through that descendant of Abraham should all peoples of the earth be blessed. And that is a wonderful and majestic reason by which God authorized and chose the nation of Israel. I think another purpose that God had for them, a divine purpose, was they were to be a representation of holiness unto God. We have just finished up six weeks of study on the tabernacle in our Sunday school hour. All of these given unto the people of Israel. She was to be a light shining in the darkness of the world. And any by faith that could come unto her could experience redemption, if you will. I think of Ruth the Moabitess, not a Jew by birth, but by faith will be in the presence of the Almighty God. The same is true of other individuals as well. Rahab comes to mind in the same scenario. Uriah the Hittite comes to mind as well. You'll be hard-pressed to find any Moabites. You'll be hard-pressed to find any Hittites. But you'll not be hard-pressed at all to find Jews. They were chosen by divine hand. And they were to be an establishment of light and godliness on this earth. A third thing, and 
Paul touches on this in Romans chapter 3. Unto them were given the oracles of God. God was going to use the Jewish people to preserve His Word. If I had, to quote Spurgeon for a moment, if I had no other reason by which I should have respect for the Jewish people, it is the very fact that God chose them to preserve the Word of God that is so near and dear to the heart of every child of God. You go find the Gentile that penned the Scriptures. The closest you perhaps will come is Luke. David was not, Moses was not, Samuel was not. All of the original apostles, many of the disciples, Peter and Paul and Matthew, John the Beloved, Mark, they're all of Jewish descent. That's one thing that's extraordinary about the Jewish people. I don't know that you would easily be able to say this about all people. I know that you cannot say it about my ancestors. But the level of literacy and the copious ability to keep and preserve historical record is unparalleled when compared to the Jewish people. They have been pinning and keeping and copying documentation for generations and generations and generations. It's almost like God had a divine purpose for them. Wink, wink. So the root cause is found that they are a special object of satanic attack. Satan's hatred of Israel can be seen from the beginning of its dealings, or rather his dealings with Abraham throughout the course of human history. You think about the temptation that is subsequent to Abraham's life, Abraham's incomplete obedience, Abraham's uh, incomplete obedience when he was to depart and go unto the land as opposed to postponing, the continued hindrance that Lot caused in the life of Abraham. We would think about the birth of Ishmael, that wild man that was born unto Abraham and to Hagar. That's a seed in which would bring great trouble and turmoil. It's a special way, if you will, a special demonic type attack by which Abraham failed in faith towards God. I think of the continual corrupting influence in the life of his descendants. You don't have to read far into uh, the book of Genesis and you'll find out that there's a tremendous amount of corruption that occurs in the life of those. You've got two brothers that destroy a city. It's genocide. They wiped out the city of Shechem. That's a terrible atrocity to be sure. You've got immorality that is pervasive. Why is all that present? Yes, because of the sinfulness of these men's heart, but also I would submit to you constant satanic attack. You think about Joseph in Egypt's land. Constant corruption and temptation to be corrupted. All in a sense to destroy God's plan that is the nation of Israel. Of course, down in Egypt you have divine intervention in the Exodus where Moses would lead out the people of God by a mighty hand. In this passage, Deuteronomy 28, God through Moses had warned them of the consequences of disobedience. Let me just point out some of this here in Deuteronomy. Let me read something to you in Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter number 4. And Deuteronomy is the renaming of the Old Testament law. And so it, it somewhat summarizes the previous books. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 and following, he says, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. 
when thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye have remained long in the land, and shall what? Corrupt yourselves. How? Making graving images, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye shall go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall be utterly destroyed. The Lord shall scatter you where? Among the nations. Ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. There ye shall serve gods, the works of men's hands, woods and stones, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. That's a consequence of their disobedience and rebellion against God. Yet even the promise that this would occur was not enough to deter them. Their incomplete obedience would continue. They would consistently yearn toward their own desires instead of submitting to the will of God. I give you a few things to consider in this regard. The children of Egypt, Israel leaving Egypt, they failed to enter right away the promised land. I think if you go back and study one of the most disappointing times in all of the 40 years wandering was when they were on the cusp of entering in the land. And Moses, if you'll recall, sent in 12 spies. And the 12 spies related of what a good land it was. Of course it's a good land. Isaiah and his prophecy in the fifth chapter of Isaiah said that God, God had picked it out, that it was the choices of land. It was a land that had flown with, flew, uh, flown with milk and honey. It was a land that set as a crossroads between three different continents. It was a land of greatness and it was a land of wealth and it was a land of prosperity and there were houses that they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant. And yet at that pivotal moment, they did not trust God. The 10 spies would come back, 10 of the 12. It's too difficult for us. It's too hard for us. We must not enter this promised land. So God would place upon them 40 years of wilderness wandering. And that was a merciful sense. God could have struck them all dead at that time, yet God persevered with them, as it were. And 40 years full of murmuring and complaining in the wilderness. And then after the 40 years, Joshua chapter 1, in a time of high flood, the Lord would lead them through Joshua into the land. This is where they take Jericho and Ai. And yet, after going into the land and seeing marvelous victory after victory, at the end of Joshua's life, there's still an incomplete possession of the land. There's still parts of the land that they had not gone out and taken. It brings you to the time of Caleb and the judges. When you get to the time of the judges, it starts off, Judges chapter 1, in such a marvelous light. You've got Caleb being an old man saying, give me this mountain. And then he says to another man, if one can take of this, I'll give them my daughter to, to wife. <coughs> one of those first judges will do so. And yet by the time you move down through the judges, you find that there is nothing but an utter degeneracy that occurs in the land of Israel. You come to the end of the book of Judges, you know what you'll find? 
And every man did that which is right in his own eyes. In fact, immorality and homosexuality is rampant in the tribe of Benjamin when you come to the end of the book of Judges. That's a far cry, isn't it, from Abraham, the friend of God? That's a far cry from the reaffirming of the promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. That's a far cry from Joseph leaving his cloak as he ran from Potiphar's wife. Too deplorable is this society. And they'll have their first civil war. And with the exception of literally a handful of the tribe of Benjamin's left, they'll nearly eradicate the tribe of Benjamin from amongst the 12 tribes that exist. And so then you come to that last judge, Samuel. <clears throat> In Samuel's youth, God had appointed him. The miraculous provision that God gave to Hannah and her husband, little Samuel. And from the time he was weaned, he would dwell in the, in, uh, near the tabernacle in Shiloh and he would minister before God. Do you remember this? And as a young lad, mom every year would take him a new linen. Keep growing, you know. And he as a youth would watch that degeneracy continue in the people of God. They hadn't had a prophet in years. They'd not have a reasonable judge in years. And in one day, Eli and his sons are destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant is taken away. And Israel's at a very dark day and they're turning their eyes to the high priest in training, the kid Samuel. And Samuel would lead faithfully the children of Israel until his old years. And the children of Israel said, Samuel, you've got these children of yours, your boys, but we're not going to follow them. They're heathens. Samuel agreed. And so you come to the middle portion of 1 Samuel, the children of Israel, doubting God once again, refusing to submit to the will of God, appoint kings, thinking that would be the end of the matter. Because somehow if we can't get a prophet, if we can't get a priest, if we can't get a judge to do right, we'll get a king to do right. And greater truth for words about government has never been said than what the ancient Samuel said in the 14th chapter of Samuel. You don't want a king. He'll take take, take from you. And they looked at that old man and said, we love you, but that's exactly what we want. And they'd appoint a king. And Samuel would anoint that first king named Saul. The children of Israel picked him because of his height, because of his backstory, because of how he looked. And with the exception for some highlights in his ministry as a king, he was mostly a failure. And following David, except some highlights of his greatness, he had great failures in his life. And Solomon could break either way depending on the day. And then in 922, the kingdom would split, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And two, the kingdom of the north, the ten tribes, and to the south, which we'll call Judah from here on, though it was Judah and Benjamin, would go on two kingly lines. The northern kingdom of Israel would never see a good king, a king that followed God for the balance of their existence. Within 200 years of its founding, that southern kingdom would be carried away into captivity in the first Jewish diaspora. And other groups would be brought in, not unlike the Samaritans. Well, the southern kingdom would continue under men like Uzziah and Hezekiah. 
And it would continue approximately 150 more, 150 more years before Babylonian would besiege it under Nebuchadnezzar and it finally would be led away in the first of three captivities in the second Jewish diaspora. Now you would think by the time you get to the appointment of kings and the apostasy that follows the days of Solomon that that would be the concluding matter of the nation of Israel. But yet they'll remain. Nehemiah will speak of the impoverished few that lied around the city. Ezra will speak of these. And some 30, 40, 50,000 people will return to Ezra uh, with Ezra and they would rebuild the temple and subsequently the walls and they would usher in for a small brief time a 400 year period called the Hasmonean dynasty which would be a Jewish kingdom and yet it would utterly fall and by the time you get to around 100 BC they're under Seleucid control uh, and there they would remain until the Romans and the Idumeans had carved it up and that is the entrance upon which you get Luke chapter number 2. You see, their constant failures produced in a real sense in their life the verification of what Deuteronomy chapter 28 said. They'll be scattered abroad among all these nations. You look to Acts chapter 2, you'll find out all of these believers, all of these upright Jews, they weren't believers then, but upright Jews that had regathered into Jerusalem for the feast of the Pentecost had come from the four corners of the world. How'd they get there? Because God kept his word. When confronted with constant temptation and constant demonic assault, faith and obedience exclusively towards God was not their first decision. God allowed the societies it would be to wreak havoc upon them. These failures on their side opened them up to the consequences which ultimately corresponded in the diaspora. The dispersing, if you will. Rather than being obedient and unified in a cohesive country, they were to dwell primarily among the heathen. And this brought about its own great and terrible difficulty, didn't it? You think in the Old Testament, some things that occurred during the time of the Diaspora, when they were carried away in captivity in 722 and 586, I think particularly following the line of Judah, you come to Esther. Do you remember what occurred in the book of Esther? You've got Haman. What did Haman do? Why, Haman built some gallows. And you know who he's going to hang on them there gallows? The Jew. Why? Because they were Jew. Now what level of hatred does it take to hate somebody like Haman hated them? And if it hadn't have been for a series of events on a prophetical level, on a providential scale, much of Israel would have been exterminated in the time of Ahasuerus. You go down to the end of Nehemiah, by time frame, the last of the Old Testament books, and here, even the priest had so intermarried with the heathen women that the descendants had lost every right of understanding of their Jewish culture and responsibility. Why? As a direct result of living 70 years among the heathen because of their failure to obey God. Now, you get to the time of Christ. The Lord's ministry around 33 AD is ascends into heaven, goes back, sits down at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews tells us. 
And then you have the ministry of the apostles. And then in 70 AD, the Jewish zealots decided they want to overthrow Rome. You'll remember Pilate was Roman and he was the governor of Judea. And they want to establish something of a revival nationally. You might would call it Zionism. Again, the theory of Zionism that you'll hear all the time did not start a hundred years ago. It's been around for hundreds of years. And so they gathered together, these zealots, and they're met by Titus and Vespasian. And though they did not, this father and son duo, want to destroy the temple and all of its beings, they were in constant battle with them. And a subsequent response was to raise all of the temple to tear it into shreds and melt its gold. And the zealots would retreat to the southern palace of Herod, a place called Masada. And after a several month, perhaps year, time frame, a rampart would be built by Jewish slaves. Masada would be opened. And rather than facing death at the hands of all of these Roman invaders, these zealots at Masada had decided to commit suicide. And that quelled the rebellion for a short time. And you'd think that'd be it for the Jewish people. But within the next 70 years, children being born, marriages being had, expanse being given, they'll once again desire their own freedom in their own country. And the emperor has changed now. It's no longer Titus and Vespasian. It's one by the name of Hadrian. Hadrian. From 117 A.D. to 138 A.D., he'll ban the holding of Sabbath days. He'll ban the Torah. He'll ban the practice of circumcision. They'll rise up to him, against him, 132 to 135 A.D., and this is a powerful time frame. It is estimated by Roman and Jewish historians that more than a half a million Jews would die under Hadrian's hand, 132 to 135 A.D. That's a pretty good-sized number. They'd be banned from Jerusalem, never to enter its city again, or so the decree would be had. He would pursue them with vigor, but something providential is going to occur. Within three years, Hadrian will die. And the Jews, once again, guess what they'll do? They'll return to their homeland. And it would continue. Now, we're past the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. You see, when Hadrian would pass, he wouldn't call the land Israel anymore. And he didn't want to call it Judah anymore. He had, as Titus and Vespasian before him, had decided to cut off the whole tree. If he could cut the whole tree off and kill Jerusalem and Christianity at one time, it would be finished. He was successful in neither of them. So he attempted to change the name of that land. So it would no longer be referred to as Judea or Israel or anything of that sense. You know what he'd call it? Palestine. You know why he called it Palestine? Because he's familiar with the Old Testament. And he knew that the Philistines were an enemy of the Jew. And it would be referred to by the annals of Rome as Syria, Palestine. From the 100 A.D. mark 
And yet, even to this day, in the 11 and 1200 A.D., it was changed to the Levant. It's an Italian word. And the Muslims would adopt it later as calling it the area upon which the sun rises. You see, the Romans would control it. That land that we call the state of Israel, that land called Palestine, the Romans would control it from Hadrian's time down until the 600s. During that time, of course, it had passed into the Western Roman Empire, or I should say the Eastern Roman Empire, that we historians know as the Byzantine Empire. Constantinople, you'll remember all that. In the 600s, it's held as part of the Arab dominion. From 650 onward, it would be part of the Arab Caliphate. The Jews would live there all of this time. Around the 11 and 1200s, you'll remember the Crusaders would take it. And back and forth, this land would go as Western Europeans. Crusaders would go to liberate it and establish stuff, and the Arabs would fight them back, and back and forth and back and forth this would go for the better part of two and a half centuries. In the 1500s, the Ottoman Turks would take this land, and they would control it until 1918. In 1918, that was the conclusion of World War I. And at the end of World War I, with the Treaty of Versailles, each of the enemy or the Axis powers were going to have to pay for the encroachment of losing World War I. Germany is one that we're familiar with. It's all carved up. Europe is all changed. Most of the monarchs are washed away. It's the establishment of Eastern Bloc nations. And the old man of Europe, the Ottoman Empire, loses its holdings in part of North Africa and Palestine. And it would be held as a British mandate from 1918 to 1948. Now, during this narrative of history that I've given you, we have scratched the surface of the better part of 2,000 years. And there has never been a time in those 2,000 years where there has ceased to be Jews in that land. Oh, many of them would leave for a time. And they would settle in places like Spain and Britain and Germany and the Soviet Union to have periods of peace followed by great periods of conflict. During times of conflict, many a time the Jew was expelled and all of their land and houses and possessions were taken. I just read an article this past week about a college over in Ohio. They have an art gallery that is present. In fact, uh, back in the 1940s, Roosevelt commissioned a group of art curators known as the Monument Men. And they were to go into Europe and they were to follow the Allied advancing and they were to, try to reclaim all of the art that the Germans had stolen, and one of those monument men would later become the president of the school. Oberlin College is the name of it. And just recently, that college had an iconic portrait there that actually belonged to a Jewish person and had been taken during the Nazi regime. Just made the news recently. Seventy years it has been stolen. I have a book in my library about a young man. He lived in Poland, and his parents would all die in the death camps. And as an older man, he had made his way all the way to Israel as a young teenager, early 20s. As now an older man, he returned to Poland. It's the first time he'd been there in 40 years. He was able to walk the streets and go right back to the very house he lived his lifetime in. And he knocked on the door and he introduced himself to the people. 
And he said, uh, I would like to just see the house a little bit. And they denied him entrance. You know why? Because their grandparents had received it from the Polish government. And they were afraid that he might take it from them. You know, you'll hear once or twice about how there's some crime being done to somebody in war. It's what happens. But I'm telling you, for 2,000 years, the Jews have settled and been rooted out and stuff been taken from them by every country on the face of the earth, from China to Britain, from the Soviet Union, all the way across the, uh, the northern part of Africa. In fact, there's only been world, one world power, by my estimation, that cannot say, the world cannot say they have not been a friend of Israel. And that's the one wherein we're standing this evening. The suffering of Israel reveals God's discipline and righteousness. And it's impossible as you surface the narrative of the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures to miss the divine grace and love that he hath preserved a godly remnant. While the prophecy of Moses had come true, so had the constant hope that had held out among all Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou shalt seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. The passage we read at the onset, the closing verses of Deuteronomy give a graphic description of God's future discipline of the nation. The prediction was one of Israel's future suffering. It says in the text, in Deuteronomy 28, you'll be plucked off of the land. They'll be few in number. They'll be scattered. And you come and continue in verse number 65, they'll find no rest, find no ease. That's exactly what you see in the history of the Jewish nation. In the Old Testament record, the captives are a major form of suffering of Israel. The northern tribes are carried off by Assyria in 722 B.C., this is followed by the captivity and the subsequent carrying away of the southern tribes in 586. The city of Jerusalem was left desolate and in ruins. This judgment was uh, preceded by centuries of warning in the written word and oral ministry of God's prophets. And when the Old Testament closes, Israel's back in the land. Many cities are reestablished and they're worshiping in the temple. In the New Testament, 400 years later, suffering continues. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23 and 24, Christ pronounces divine judgment. He warns the leaders of Israel the time in which the temple would be destroyed and the nation once again would be scattered. And so it is. <clears throat> in fact, I would say it is even to this day. Between 18... Uh, 1881 and 1939, you have five major immigration waves of Israelites from around the world returning. In 1948, at the beginning of, of uh, the state of Israel in May of 48, you have one million European Jews that leave portions of Egypt or, or portions of Germany and Poland and such and return to the land of Israel. You have 800,000 uh, Arabic Jews that would move into the land of Israel. You would have 1.5 million that would leave the Soviet Union and return. And to this day, I would submit that of the sum... 12, 14 million people that make up <coughs> the population of Israel, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights, about 14 million. There's only about 8 million Jews in that number. I believe the mayor of New York just recently mentioned that. 
that there are more Jews in New York City than there are in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv together. They're still scattered. And they will be scattered for a certain time. In fact, when you look at the history of the nation of Israel, the prophet Jeremiah's writing wages or rings very true. In Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 16 in time will not permit us to investigate it, but you write it down in your notes. The Lord says that he will send hunters and fishers in which to get his people to return. I would submit to you all the Jewish immigrations that have occurred, that have brought people from the lands elsewhere into the land of Israel, has been at the hand of persecution. But their ministry and the plans by which God has for them has not concluded. Nor is the end of suffering yet past. There's a terrible time of suffering coming before the final restoration that Jeremiah chapter 30 speaks of. Zechariah the prophet would describe the day as a time when two parts shall be cut off and died, the third part to be brought in the fire. This is the same prophecy that Christ gives in Matthew chapter 24, and it will occur midway in the final seven-year period that Daniel speaks of in Daniel chapter 9. The Lord specifically exhorts those remnants that remain to flee to the mountain, for this will be a difficult time of suffering. You know, someone might ask, yes, I see how God has used Israel in being the uh, example of holiness and the production of the Messiah in one sense, and also in the carrying of the oracles of God, but what are the plans now? God's not finished with them. As you survey the Old and New Testament, Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament writings, I would note that the Jews still have a temple that must needs built. I would interject that that temple does not have to be built before the revelation of the son of perdition. But there is a temple that will need to be built. On Temple Mount stand two Muslim constructs, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. They're built within about 75 to 100 years of each other, and they've both been standing since around 750 A.D. That's a long time for a piece of architecture to be standing. But one day there'll be a temple upon that mount. There must be the building of a third temple. Why? Well, because there must be the son of perdition that will enter said temple. In Revelation chapter 7, a very powerful one, for those that would believe that genealogies mean nothing and that the Jews are just an intermingled people group and cannot trace their genetic ancestors, I would submit to you, Revelation chapter 7 creates quite an issue. For the scripture talks about there being 144,000 Jewish preachers and specifically says it'd be 12,000 from each tribe. How can you have 12,000 of something that is lost to humanity? Daniel chapter 9, there's got to be Jews in the land because there has to be a treaty with the nation of Israel. Daniel speaks of this in very pointed terms. There's going to have to be Jews in the land. There's going to have to be a gathering of the people because they'll have an experience of divine deliverance. One day, Gog... Magog will descend upon that land with great fervor and force and God will destroy them by his own mighty power. It would take months to bury the dead in that day. That's what Ezekiel said in chapter 37 
and 38. There must be a regathering together. You see, all of this suffering one day for Israel will come to a close. God, for God I should say, has promised that Israel will be delivered and they shall one day, Romans 11, be saved. The deliverer will come to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14, and he will establish his government and the glory will be his. Well, I said all that to say this. What do you make of right now? Friend, what's going on right now is the result of evil men. Some folks allow these current events to dictate the heart. Listen, all of this that's occurring in Israel right now, I have no doubt that God will use it, but it doesn't mean it's going to make God come back quicker. God does not need Hamas to do anything for him to return. Um, I heard a fellow the other day talk about this. What they need to do is take the Temple Mount and rebuild the Temple so Jesus can come. Jesus don't need the Temple built to come back. I'll not submit to you for a moment that Israel, the nation, as every other nation that's ever existed, is not being guilty of crimes. That they have not done things always in a right sense. But I will note, among all nations, it would seem they are the most hated. Here in our country, this is saddening to me, but Harvard University you had graduates and students at Harvard University that were parading and endorsing Hamas. Now, I don't care if you want to endorse the Palestinians. I feel sorry for some of the Palestinians that are in the plight they're at. And by the way, that ought to belong to the Arab nations. Those Palestinians locked in the Gaza Strip, if they needed a refugee shelter, why can't they go down to the desert Negev? Why can't Egypt care them? They own that land. Why can't Egypt take care of them? Egypt's built a wall that has partitioned them off. Why is that Israel's responsibility? What about Jordan or Syria? Why can't Iran help these? Why can't Lebanon help these? There's all of these uh, Arab states that exist all the world over. But there's only one Jewish country that exists. And that's the land of Israel. What do you make of all this? Well, it's a war. It's sad to say that there's a host of innocent people that live in the Gaza area. Oh, they're going to blame. And here's the atrocity about it. Some of those folks that, that are there might have a granddad or a dad or an uncle or a brother. It's all caught up in Hamas. And the young children aren't. And when that brother, uncle, dad, father, whatever dies, guess the way the little kids are going to feel? It's going to perpetuate war. You don't need me to tell you that. You just need to look over the last 50 years and know that that's the case. Who's right and who's wrong? But theologically, if you want to know who owns the land, it's the Almighty God's. If you want to know who's going to fix the problem, there's no man walking on terra firma that can fix the problem. In fact, the peace that Daniel speaks of will be a peace that demonic evil will endorse. And that's what's at the root of all of this at this hour. It's a sad thought to me that there's Christians 
both in the land of Israel and perhaps in the area of Palestine. There may be believers that are going to be caused to fight against one another. It's a travesty. But friend, God is not finished. And one day all of the sufferings of Israel, and for that matter, all of the sufferings of the Palestinians, will be finished. The hope is not in the advancement of some Zionistic state. But the hope is invested in the God of Zion who will redeem His people. As you and I see all of this, our heart breaks. I'm not delighted. And I hear the president uh, or the prime minister speak, the president is too, and I look at all the wars and I can't help but think as a dad myself of the atrocity that comes. Amazing how perspective. As a little kid, I used to have in my mind a glorification. I think about military and World War II and things of that nature. I used to have a glorification in my mind. But as I study and grow, I begin in my heart to look at war as being an utter awfulness on the face of the earth. I say, preacher, are you becoming a peace-toting guy? Friend, I always want to be for peace. I always want to be for peace. I think the child of God should be at peace. But unfortunately, we do not live in a world that is at peace. And for that cause, sometimes there is war to be had. Even David said that he was for peace and his persecutors were for war. So then David cried to God that God would teach his fingers to war. Yes, every child of God should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that will only come as the descendants of Abraham, Jacob, and of Isaac look into the God of their salvation and find their redemption in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Father, thank you for this opportunity you've given. I know, Lord, that we've went through a tremendous amount of information. Yes, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the salvation of souls. Lord, let our, not our hearts and minds be clouded by any of these things, but rather that thy sovereign hand is at work and we rest in trust in the God of all goodness. Lord, I pray that you'd be with your children. Yes, scattered around the world, I speak of believers in this New Testament age, believers that are in that land of Israel, perhaps in the Gaza Strip, believers. It's forced upon them. Lord, I pray for their comfort. I pray for their protection. For the nations that be at war, Lord, might you protect our country. Might this crisis there, this wicked assault by wicked individuals, might it not spread beyond and rupture a third world war? Might not there be that catastrophic loss of life? Yet, Lord, let our hope and trust be in the God of Abraham. And might we trust always in Him. It's in Christ's blessed name we pray. Amen.